With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whalers, wherever you are in the world today. Today is January 10th. Happy New Year to all of you that are just uh, tuning back in. Um, and, and it's it's been a really interesting kind of holiday season and and bear market so far. I think we're tiptoeing around a, a winter. Um, you know, the difference between a bear is prices are just going down, but there's still a lot of interest in the asset class. And the winter, which is everyone's going, I'm done. I want nothing to do with this. We're, we're walking away for an indefinite period of time. There's there's some kind of, you know, thoughts of, of a potential winter, um, but in no way, shape or form has it actually come to fruition. Um, there's still a lot of investments. There's still a lot of innovation. Bitcoin is, you know, back up to about a 17,000, you know, ish 17.5 stable coin. Um, so we really haven't seen that bull come back, but I think the most important thing is that we hit that $16,000, uh, level and it's kind of been floating around for the last month, you know, right in, right in and around there. Um, that being said, my guest today, I'm really excited for because we're getting back over into the kind of the metaverse side of things. We're getting into one of the most important, uh, technologies of web three, which is the visualization part of this. Um, blockchain does an amazing job of, of storing and moving data around, but at some point we got to say, we got to move past the 2d web pages and really be able to showcase kind of what immersive worlds look like. Um, Josh, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. I would love to kind of get a little bit of your background of where you came from. Um, and then we'll go into, you know, what you've been working on lately. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jay. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, so I'm going to go way back because I don't come from healthcare or virtual reality, two of spaces that collided for my current business. Um, but I, I, looking back over my life and my career, a really formative moment in my life at eight years old, I found myself with a congenital ligament and joint issue that put me in the hospital with surgery. That surgery had a complication. I was hospitalized for several weeks and away from school and other kids for several months. And that was such a formative experience in my life because experiencing the pain, isolation, and anxiety of a young child going through the healthcare system, you really understand a lot of the limitations and what it's like to be in a situation all of us will be in, which is to be a patient of healthcare at some point throughout our lives. And having a congenital issue, I had numerous surgeries, hospitalizations, and recoveries all through my childhood, adolescence, and through early adulthood. And throughout those experiences, there always were doctors, nurses, physical therapists, teachers, and people involved in my life um, that really made a, a real impact in helping me recover and feel good again. Um, but growing up in LA, in an entrepreneurial family, uh, my dad had a top 20 global market research firm and going, uh, went to school at USC and studied business, wanted to graduate early, dove into the entertainment industry. And after trying to get a head start in entertainment, after a couple of years of cycling in entertainment marketing and film production, the talent agency space, I realized that the work that I was doing at that time was not nearly as impactful as a nurse who held my hand and walked me through a moment of a lot of pain or stress or isolation as a kid. And I really held close those relationships and memories, the people who helped me. 
And so after a few years of working in all the cool, prestigious jobs a 21-year-old could ask to do, I realized I wanted my career to make more of a positive impact. And that wouldn't take away from my ambition of creating success, um, but I thought I could do it both and combine those two. And so I took a step back from where I was, and I didn't quite know how to manage my path. And the idea of starting a virtual reality-based medical device is so far out of what I ever could have uh, guessed I would do with my career. But at that time, I had some personal trainers who really helped me lose weight after getting injured and get back into sports. And so I went into the fitness industry and nutrition. And I had jobs in marketing and product management. And ultimately, I learned how to build technology-based tools that could help us build better connections with each other, get access to information and tools to help us live healthier lives. So little did I know that disillusioned 21-year-old who went to chase fitness and nutrition and all these other things, as I started learning about tech that really set me for the foundation for understanding how technology plays a role in helping us live healthier lives and to figure out how these technologies can actually motivate and reward healthy behavior. And so in um, about eight years ago, I uh, took the leap into entrepreneurship and started Applied VR. That's amazing. So, I mean, listen, your story, while, you know, probably unique way back in your childhood is very commonplace um, today, you know, coming out of the pandemic and, and, you know, just so many things, the technology does mildly exist um, to interconnect people, but it still seems very distant. You know, my, my kids, I've got a, 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 a 15 year old and an 11 year old. I was like, how old are these kids nowadays? And, and they just hate zoom school. They just, they're like, they despise, I love it. I think it's great. Um, Cause I have to drive them anywhere. Um, but, but uh they just absolutely hate it. And so I love the, I love the concept of interconnecting people. I mean, to me, that's what this, this entire, uh, you know, metaverse kind of goal should be is, is how do we create relationships and, and, and not have to kind of, uh, feel like it's secondary to an in life, you know, real life person or real life meeting. Um, and so I think it's so cool. What was kind of your, your biggest, you know, uh, driving forces when you were going from, you know, building this company and then let's talk about what you built. But when you were doing this and there's a lot of VR things that are out there, there's a lot of immersive technology. What was, what was your reason to say like, it's not good enough? Yeah. So I first came across virtual reality back in 2014. My first experience was with Oculus's DK1, their first dev kit. Um, and so it, it was way further behind where we are today. Um, but still, the first time I put on a headset and you truly get transported, you know, you and I are talking together and like your kids, you know, this offers a lot of great benefit to be able to connect us and have a really deep, meaningful conversation as we look eye to eye. But there's really no part of my brain that thinks we're in the same room together right now. Um, yeah. You're a box on a screen on a computer that I'm staring at. And I enjoy this more than just being able to talk on the phone because I can see your expressions and we can interact in a more um, you know, lively way. Um, but when you put on VR, even in the most crude simulations, even when you take on a non-human form, if we're just two monkeys or you know, robots or whatever it is sitting in a room, that proximal distance, the eye contact, the spatial awareness, and the presence developed through VR... Um, really creates a connection in the brain that makes it feel like we're actually together. And so the way I came across virtual reality, I mentioned my dad has a marketing research firm. Um, and at the time, they were looking at new ways to study human behavior. 
So they came across virtual reality because they hired some really, really smart psychologists to understand how we make behaviors as humans, which Mm -hmm. is ultimately what market research is about, understanding behavior. And some of these programs that they're recruited from, like UC Santa Barbara, they've had virtual reality labs since the late 80s and early 90s. It's been around that long, though it was expensive machine, uh, tethered, and all these other constraints that made it confined to laboratories. Um, But the idea of simulation and being able to actually study behavior has been around for a while. And in the context of market research, it could help them understand how people shop in a store. You could put them in a virtual Walmart and see how they respond to science if they pick up goods. Um, But along with those applications, I was learning that there were these 20 plus years of academic research showing how VR could build empathy, address major healthcare issues like addiction and pain and anxiety and phobias, how it could be used to provide environmental awareness, uh, bring people closer together and build deeper connections and all these big applications that have been studied for 20 plus years. But as I mentioned, the equipment cost $50,000. And it was tethered to a number of machines. And it just wasn't really designed for scale and application outside the laboratory. And that was really my first introduction to healthcare. That a lot of great innovation is born in the laboratory and dies there. Because there's not a business model. There's not uh, not an operational model. There's no capital and team to bring it to life. And so at that time, I was looking at this and looking at that body of research and feeling the impact of my first experience in VR saying, what if there was a way to bring this outside the laboratory, take these proven principles that showed how you can design experiences that can actually create behavior change and create a business model and operational model to make this more accessible. And at that time, Facebook had yet to acquire Oculus, but they were on the cusp of making that decision. And so it became apparent that the Samsungs and Facebooks and Googles and all these other players would be in a position to take that expensive not usable form factor and make it available to the average consumer over the coming years. But it might happen a little sooner, but eight years into the journey, we've made a lot of progress in the space and we're only going to see more over the next 10 years. I love that. I love that. And and so, you know, right here I've got, this is the uh, Oculus Quest 2 or 3, I don't remember which one. Um, and then, you know, the newest uh, Pro. And it, it's interesting that even is, you know, what, uh, eight years after you kind of first were exposed to this, um, it's still very nuanced, you know, it's still like, I can't get, you know, my, my kid loves this one. Uh, the 11 year old loves this one, hates this one. Um, yeah. and so I think it's interesting that, that the technology still is, is evolving, but the utilities and the use cases that you're, that you're describing have real world value today. And, and, and even if they love this or hate this, if this is your choice between this or nothing, this in isolation, this is really good. This is really, really good. And so for people that are, are kind of locked to like, I need help or I need experience or I need some form of connection, like these are fabulous devices. I mean, there's a lot of research and development that went into these. And I love hearing, um, kind of the, the, the thoughts around that. With that being said, let's dive right into exactly, you know, what you guys are doing at Applied VR and, and how you're helping, uh, your, your, do you call them patients or clients? Yeah, patients. And so, um, I think you brought up a really good point. And I think there's a lot of inflated expectations of where all these applications of Web3 and AI and VR and whatever the buzzword of the year is, because often um, there's solutions looking for problems. And that's for a very good reason, because it takes a lot, a lot of time in R&D, as, as you well said, to be able to develop uh, the technology to a place where it's ready to be used on a commercial basis. 
Um, but ultimately, where we saw the opportunity was to really focus on that 20 plus years of research and take approaches and applications that have been de-risked because they've been studied. And while they might not have been studied in the wild, they've been studied in labs and we'd identified really clear design principles of how to use virtual reality to solve problems that without that technology, you couldn't solve. And so the most important caveat of what I share is if you don't need virtual reality to solve your problem, don't use it. It adds cost, it adds complexity, um, and it adds a lot of other factors that if you could do it on a mobile phone, if you could do it on a computer screen, if you could do it on a tablet, use that. It's just way simpler. People already have those devices. But in the case of the world that we're talking about, so Applied VR developed the first FDA-authorized virtual reality-based medical device for the treatment of chronic lower back pain. And the idea is for patients with complicated health issues, we're focused on chronic pain, but the same could be said true about mental health disorders and a lot of behavioral conditions and addiction and all these other conditions, is patients for the longest time have been treated for simply managing the symptoms of that condition. If I have pain, I take an opioid to mask the symptoms of pain. If I have anxiety, I'm prescribed a benzo, and that's supposed to reduce the symptom of anxiety. And I could go on with all these different conditions. But as humans, chronic conditions are biopsychosocial, meaning there's biological components, but there's also psychological and social determinants of those disease that can make it better or worse. And so if you're not sleeping, if you have stress, if you have social isolation, if you have disturbances of where you live and your sense of security, um, if you have a dysregulated nervous system, if you have um, the lack of psychological coping skills to deal with all a lot of the things that I just mentioned, it doesn't matter how well you manage that single symptom, you're likely going to significantly suffer. And we all saw this from COVID, how just the idea of isolation and stress from a pandemic brought up a lot of other health conditions that otherwise may have been more dormant. And so the mental health impact of just being isolated and scared has really had a, a, a deteriorating effect on our society. And so when we took a look at some of these problems and what VR could offer, um, some of the seminal research in VR was actually in the world of pain. So going back into the early 90s, a really innovative researcher at the University of Washington named Hunter Hoffman had this idea that the brain's a processor and we're really bad at multiprocessing. Um, we all know we're bad at multitasking, but he had this idea, even at a brain level, um, we're really bad at it. And so let's take burn victims going through a really painful procedure. Wound debridement is the process of removing the bandages where you're literally pulling it off of the scabs and burn wounds. Incredibly painful. And typically they would use morphine and opioid in order to help manage the pain. And it wasn't even that great. But that was the standard of care. And this was even before we deemed an opiate epidemic and a lot of these problems back in the early 90s. And so we had this idea, instead of offering morphine, what if we gave half the patients a really immersive virtual reality experience where we put them in a pair of goggles and we give them some interactive game. So we'd put them in a winter wonderland, we'd give one hand on a mouse, and they would shoot snowballs at snowmen going through this winter wonderland experience. And they found the idea of if you can create enough cognitive load, so taking over enough of, uh, of that mental bandwidth from the brain, and you can give an interactive task like shooting a snowball, you could actually override the sense of pain. 
because it required so much bandwidth going back to the brain as a processor and not being able to multitask. Just that cognitive load and the focus on that action actually reduced the experience of pain. And they ran studies putting someone in fMRI and they actually saw a decrease of brain activity in the regions responsible for pain. And so it was really powerful. And study over study, they were able to replicate the result that in the beginning, just with acute pain, that you could actually reduce both the subjective perception of pain as well as the objective experience as measured by those fMRIs. And there are a number of other studies in other areas. And so as we came to the table, we wanted to take these approaches and say, what are the different ways VR can help someone with that biopsychosocial framework and implement it in a way that patients are going to find the treatment uh, more engaging, more enjoyable, and hence they're more likely to actually go through with it. And so we worked with a, a world-renowned pain psychologist named Dr. Beth Darnall, who's up at Stanford. And she had been developing psychology-based tools for chronic pain patients over the 20 years of her career. And so when we tried to create a program, we wanted to take a look at this whole VR world with the studies and applications uh, like at the University of Washington. And we also want to take other evidence-based approaches that might not have been piped into technology yet. And we took a holistic view and we created this program that's an eight-week treatment program called Reliever. And every day, there's a different module patients use um, that reinforces skills that teach self-regulation and psychological coping skills. So at the end of eight weeks, patients are better equipped to deal with their condition. And the goal isn't to trap someone in VR and to create a virtual opioid where they have no pain. Uh, it's quite the opposite. It's to teach skills so when the headset comes off, they're better equipped to deal with the pain. So there's five types of content categories. One is diaphragmatic breathing. So we actually use your breath as an input and create immersive feedback loops with your mm. own body and breath. And so as you exhale, you see the plume of your breath go into the virtual world. And as you slow down your breathing, you make a tree grow, then flowers blossom, and a, a monument come back together. And we're actually creating a positive feedback loop that rewards the desired behavior, which is slow diaphragmatic breathing, re reinforcing something that's so simple and accessible, um, but abstract for people to practice breath work. And then we have experiences that are games like in that University of Washington experience that teach you how to shift your mind and focus and help reduce the sensation of pain when it comes up, uh, meditative and relaxation experiences, pain education where we take you in the body and you can understand what's happening when your pain flares up and how these techniques calm you down. And what we find is over that course of eight weeks at the end of treatment, about two-thirds of patients experience clinically meaningful reductions in pain meaning they've reduced their pain at least 30%. Wow. And in that, which is, when you compare to an opioid, about a third of people get that level of, of pain response from an opioid. And across the full group in our pivotal trial, which was a randomized control trial of 188 participants, on average, patients had 42% less pain. And up to some cases, up to 60% up to 60 improvements in how pain interferes with activity, sleep, stress, mood, showing how it's not only improving their pain, but their overall quality of life. And so it's really well tolerated, has very minimal side effects, some dizziness and headaches that can get resolved by taking off the headset in a very small amount of people. And we're seeing life-changing results. And the most exciting part about this is when we take a look at 6, 12, 18 months later, a really meaningful amount of patients are retaining those benefits. We've yet to publish our 18-month data, um, but six months post-treatment, Still about half of patients, I think about 47 or 48% of patients, 
are still at that clinically meaningful threshold of pain reduction. And so they're not just getting it while they're in the moment. Like I said, they're acquiring skills, bring it into their life. We're seeing a good amount of those patients sustain those results up to a year and a half after returning the headset, after only two months of using it. So it really is powerful. That, number one, amazing. I mean, beyond amazing. And, and I let you keep running with it because there was like 15 things I wanted to stop you on, but yeah. I just, I, I'm, I'm so enamored with the concept. And, and let me be clear from a personal perspective, anything anything that reduces this country's or anyone's needs on opioids is, is a net positive. Um, you know, the, the drug crises and the, and the mental health crises that are facing the entire planet um, is, is much larger than a lot of, than, than most people understand and think of. And so, so if you're saying that by putting this on, you know, we, you can reduce any percentage of people that are, that are, are seeking to relieve chronic pain or, or chronic illness or anything along those lines and give them a, a choice of this or a pharmaceutical drug, that massive win. And I really applaud you for, for the thinking, the thought process and everything else along those lines. When, when you, uh, you know, kind of approach doctors or, or, you know, kind of the, the clients that then put the, give this to the patients, what's kind of their, their first feedback or their questions or, or like, are they just amazed and they buy in immediately or are they kind of very skeptical about this? Yeah, healthcare is laden with skepticism, and that's a really good, healthy thing for that industry. If we adopted anything that had some semblance of hope, um, you know, we we would uh, be disillusioned a lot of the time. And there's major safety and ethical implications, especially for higher risk things. Uh, but upon explaining one that we're based in these evidence based approaches, most people don't realize that twenty, thirty years of research just behind ER and how we're we're not really recreating the wheel. Um, so the things that I'm talking about that are changing behavior around diaphragmatic breathing, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, relaxation, and pain education, all those things could be done outside of VR. But generally, they're not. And they're not for a number of different reasons. So first and foremost is for every uh, 10 to 30,000 patients, there's only one trained specialist for, for pain. And so there just isn't enough supply of professionals. And because of the pandemic, some health systems have experienced a 20% dropout in terms of their nursing and physician staffs because of how hard it is to be a clinician, how hard it is to become a nurse in today's market. And so we're seeing a huge gap of care. Two is uh, a lot of mental health and behavioral health is highly stigmatized. It's the idea of actually seeking care and going down and sitting with a therapist and divulging uh, your vulnerabilities um, is a really challenging thing for most people to do. And then lastly, mental health in particular and behavioral health is very poorly reimbursed too. And so you also have barriers for actually who pays for it and how it gets paid for because a lot of mental health is out of pocket and not everyone can afford to do that. And so a big part of our positioning isn't even around virtual reality and how it can create a more effective experience that's more engaging, with better retention, with better durability, which is all 100% true. But we really lean into those gaps in care, because that's another epidemic that people aren't talking about. Um, and ultimately, in order to provide care um, to an increasingly impacted group of people suffering from pain, suffering from mental health, suffering from behavioral health, we need to think differently about the delivery of healthcare. We need to go beyond the walls of a clinic or even the telehealth model, which has done gr a great job at creating bridges to, to connect patients and doctors together. 
But if you don't have trained practitioners on the other end of it, what good is telehealth? Who are you going to connect the person to? And so in the world of, of the types of therapies that we're developing, they're completely self-administered in the home on demand for the patient. And so it's under the supervision of a doctor, requires a in, prescription. In v, in v, they're, they're in VR with the person? Uh, nope, there's no person. It's okay. an entirely self-guided experience. Okay. In those modules I talked about, they power it on, they put on a headset, and they go through these immersive experiences that okay. sometimes feel like games or feel like interactive meditation experiences. And while it's under the supervision of a doctor who we provide the data to and who prescribes this to their patient, it doesn't actually require a human to be able to get the therapy. And that really is a paradigm-shifting approach into the delivery of healthcare. And so as we get into it, I'd say doctors, patients, and even insurance providers are very intrigued and interested. And upon trying this, um, it's really quick to see the benefits, particularly when a doctor sees their patient of how responsive they are. And even when they say, well, my 65-year-old, I don't know how receptive they are to technology. And that's a myth that's been dispelled a lot of times. In fact, older people often have been more receptive. Uh, they have a little less jaded expectations of what technology is and what content looks like. And so we've actually found older patients to even be more engaged in many cases than younger patients. Um, but the biggest challenge that we have in healthcare is healthcare services and products are largely paid for by health insurance companies. And payers historically have been very slow to adopt new technologies and their willingness to pay for new things. And so a big part of our business while the doctors and patients are largely on board and excited to get this into the hands of their patients, um, we've been working very closely with the government and health insurance companies uh, to drive this um, at-scale adoption because we can provide this to a group of people who are willing to pay cash and willing to get the services now. Um, but at the same time, we're doing this because we want to make impact on a massive societal problem, which is chronic pain. And in order for this to be adopted and treated like any other medical device or drug, it needs to get paid for with a similar mechanism, which is insurance companies need to cover this for their patients. And so that's our biggest journey that we're on after eight years going through the FDA approval process and getting our authorization. Now the mission is reimbursement at scale. And so we've been working with health systems like the VA, big private payers, and uh, looking at the government as well as um, necessary next steps in order to get this in the hands and for this actually to be a part of the mainstream medicine that we think it can be. I, I can tell you right now, as a bunch of YPO members and business-minded business entrepreneurs around the world are watching this, their minds are racing onto, well, this should be in every nursing home that exists. This should be in every retirement community. Like, like, the, the the great thing about this is it scales. You can you can you you could go to Zuckerberg and, and buy ten million of these things, and you'd be his his new best friend. Ship them all all over the place, and there's no net negative. There's there's no like you did you know, you, you spend an extra hour in here. You're you're a little too much. You know the the concepts of you know. The drugs are are highly addictive. Um, if you take them with the wrong uh, in the wrong way, too much, or, or mix them with the wrong thing, they're they're very volatile. And so the fact that you're getting thirty plus percent reduction, more than that, forty plus forty percent reduction in pain through a trial system right now, you know, with with a completely non addictive, um, you know, immersive experience, and you're you're, you're not. I, I I won't call you a startup. 
but you're far from your full potential of, of, you know, scaling this thing and doing what you guys are doing. Um, it's, it's a really intriguing concept. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to kind of hear and, and continue to watch where this thing goes. Um, I, I love that, that most of the doctors aren't skeptical. And I do agree that the older people are much more wild by, by this. My, my dad, uh, we gave him one a couple of years ago and he just sits on the Star Trek Enterprise bridge and, and plays that one game. And he's amazed by it. He loves it. There's, there's nothing more that, you know, they really need, but I, I appreciate, um, the fact that, that it's, it's something that almost anyone can, can pick up, charge it, power it on and, and it works. Um, how many programs are, are, of these are you running right now? How many of the, the steps? Yes. So it's a eight week program consisting of 56 modules. So every day there's a different program that a person goes into. And a really cool part of this is the average duration of one of those experiences is about seven minutes. And wow. so we want to give them the shortest amount of time that can give them some immersive practice in learning these skills. But we found, especially with an older demographic and especially with a novice to VR, um, any more beyond 10 or 15 minutes can increase the risk of having some type of motion sickness or um, uh, negative experience. And you don't need that much more because it's so immersive and it captures, as I said, so much cognitive load. Um, seven minutes in VR can feel like a lot longer and it can accomplish the same goals as even a 30 or 60 minute therapy session. And so it's wow. really a short little bite of something for eight weeks. We ship the, the device to the patient and then they return it back after that eight weeks. What hardware are you guys using? We work with a company called Pico, which got acquired by ByteDance. They're a Chinese headset manufacturer. And one of the most important things that, exactly, uh, one of the most important things that we found, just as equally important as the actual VR modules that are being delivered, it's the whole experience of using VR. So when you show the Quest, you don't really show the 20 or 30 minute setup process that someone needs. And, And so... If you just send a device into a 70 or 80 year old's house, they're probably not going to be able to, to walk through those setup steps, create account credentials or connect their, their meta ID and all these other things. And so for us, it needs to be as simple as taking it out of the box, hitting power, putting it on your head, and it just works. And so we develop the operating system, the workflow to be able to connect it to Wi-Fi, to be able to collect data just using your gaze and a keyboard. There's no controllers. You just turn your head and stare at what you what you want to happen, and you could raise the volume. And we try to make it really, really accessible. And so, when we were looking for a hardware partner, it was really important for two things. One is having access to the hardware to be able to override all the system system services, operating system, UI, uh, to be able to put our own because. Healthcare has its unique uh, needs, and we wanted to make sure that we're delivering upon those needs. Second is, we thought it was really important that we take it through FDA because we want this to have the same credibility as any other medicine or device. And so when you go through FDA, the hardware has to be subjected to all the same tests as any other medical device. So a pacemaker and all these have a list of tests that are required um, to, to go through testing the battery safety and electric magnetic compatibility and other things. And so it was important for us to have a partner who's willing to go on that ride for us and provide a lot of documentation and support as we went through FDA. You guys have already gotten a ton of press um, and, and have, have, you know, made many appearances and, and there's a lot of people really kind of excited about what you guys are doing. 
what what's the biggest hurdle on your guys's roadmap to get to kind of mainstream? Is it is it truly government regulation that's holding you guys back in insurance stuff, or is is there still a technology hurdle that needs to be overcome? Yeah, it's largely on the payment side. Ultimately, <laughs> yeah. It, and it's not just the government. So the regulation um, is actually one of the more straightforward pieces. And uh, for someone who doesn't come from healthcare, FDA is a very scary agency from the outside who seems like their job is to keep you out of the market and say no. And our experience is quite the opposite. It's actually a very collaborative agency who sees a lot of problems in healthcare and wants to bring new and novel therapies to the market but also wants to make sure that there's the right amount of evidence um, and that there's a demonstration of safety and effectiveness that you're going to introduce something that you understand the results, you understand the risks, and you can measure those before you actually bring it to the market. And so going through FDA is something that um, was really, really instrumental for us in building credibility, especially with doctors, um, because ultimately they're the gatekeepers for introducing new uh services, technologies, therapies to the marketplace. And so that was a really first important gateway for us. And while it can seem prohibitive, it actually is quite enabling if you're willing to invest the time and money and resources to go through the path. And it does take a lot of time, money, and resources in order to do that. But looking forward of who actually pays for healthcare, it really does come down to the health insurance companies. And so those are private insurance companies like Cigna and Anthem, United Healthcare. And it's government payers like Medicare and Medicaid and the VA. Um, and ultimately, it's a state-by-state thing. Insurance coverage happens on a very fragmented basis. And it can take 18 to, th- to 36 months to get new insurance coverage uh, for, for new technologies and new products and, uh, and, and new medical devices. And so it requires a healthy amount of capital and a healthy amount of experience in order to actually forge those relationships. And like FDA, insurance companies also want evidence that show that your product works. But they also want evidence that shows that your product is offsetting some type of cost, that there's an actual actual economic ROI tied to it. And so there's the hurdle for FDA where you're running a bunch of clinical trials and showing a lot of different evidence. And that evidence doesn't fully suffice for the health insurance companies who want to see if we're using reliever does that impact how often a chronic pain patient goes to the emergency room? Does it change what drugs they use? Does it change how often they visit a doctor or if they ultimately get surgery? And that's why it takes so long um, because it takes a long time to answer some of those questions. And so we're currently working with a, a number of different payers right now to run pilots and different proof of principle um, studies to be able to answer some of the key questions so they can ascribe a price and pay for this. I, I love. I, I mean, I really love the the thoroughness that you guys are taking to make sure that this is a viable product. It's not considered a game. It's not considered a toy. This is this is real medical, um, and it should be treated like real medical. And so, I love I love that concept. Um, let's talk. I, I just love to kind of know a little bit more about like kind of the and this is this is in the entrepreneurial world. Like you're so much time and attention to get this thing done. How much time do you guys spend on, on the experiences? You know, you, you have these people going in here, you know, is it, do you guys have full-time um, 3D crews uh, that, that are building these things, designing, developing feedback and, and re- evolving? Or is it, um, you know, how, how often are you guys kind of evaluating and, and refining this? It's really important to figure out 
what are the most critical areas for you to own to create uh, defensibility, to create value, and to be able to sustain a business? And if we were a full content studio, it would be really hard because it's a really, really expensive overhead because that's a lot of different specialized talent. Um, we're headquartered in Los Angeles and well, we're now fully distributed and we have 80 plus employees from Hawaii to Florida, you know, all, all the way uh, in between. Um, in the early days, we really were able to lean into that LA ecosystem and we realized we need to be experts on design. We have to be able to prototype to figure out whether those design concepts hold up. Um, but we can really rely on that ecosystem of great production that exists in markets like Los Angeles, but as well as other markets um, that are producing AAA video games, that are producing CGI and movies. And we're leveraging that same skill set, but to apply it for a different purpose, which is to create healthcare impact. And we found a lot of receptivity from a lot of groups who love applying their skill set to something that really has a mission and cause behind it. And so in the early stages, we'd build our own experiences and we would do our best to get it towards a research stage where we can actually show that it creates results. And then after we kind of proven the, the approach and show that the structure of the modules work, we would then work with those outside groups to improve the polish of the experience and uh, kind of finish the production of it. And that's a, mo- uh, a model that stuck, uh, that stuck with us. And so now because we have that developed therapy and we've gone through FDA there's limitations to how much you can continue evolving and adding to it. And so right now, a lot of the focus in the organization is on the commercial engine around the engagement and adherence of the product um, and around that, how this fits into that ecosystem, how it plugs into the medical records, how we provide reporting back in an automated way back to the doctors and uh, to the insurance companies and all the things to get this integrated in the healthcare system. Um, but we still do some R and D behind the scenes because Chronic back pain is the first indication, but we see this applying way more broadly to different areas of chronic pain and beyond into depression and anxiety and PTSD and others. And so we constantly have a, an experimentation engine and R&D going on in the background where we're trying to see what's next for us. You know, it, it, I love so much about what the way you guys approach this and, you know, you're, you're there to be professionals and you're there to kind of do this thing right. And you're, you're putting your attention and focus on where you have to be. Um, but, but, you know, getting, uh, the, the professionals that can build the one-time experiences for you and then refine them down the road. Um, you know, I can talk about a quick personal experience that I actually used VR for, for real world experience. And that was, um, I, I, years ago I was, I would struggle to speak on stage. Um, everyone deals with that, like kind of like you, you get up there and you know your speech, you know what you're going to say, but you deal with that kind of phobia of like, there's a lot of people staring at me and no one's reacting. And um, somebody told me years ago about like, hey, there's a, there's on, on it was, uh, it was a HTC way back when that they had a, a, a stage fright, um, you know, thing on Steam. And I go, oh my God, I'll try it. It, it was night and day. I, I think I did it three times where I stood on a stage and had a bunch of people randomly staring at me. It was very cartoonish at the end of the day, but it felt real enough, real enough. It wasn't real. I knew it wasn't real. I know I was standing in my living room, but it at least gave me the tool set that when I did step on stage, I remember two or three things during that practice session that allowed me to, 
to kind of just take a breath and, and keep going. And I think this is, if I'm way off, then please correct me, but it sounds like that's the exact same experience. You're putting people into experiences of which when they run into problems, they run into a phobia, fear, pain, whatever the case is, they at least have a couple of thoughts in their heads. And a lot of people are visual learners um, that they just can see this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I'm supposed to take some steps to relieve this. Yeah, the coolest uh, feedback that we get is I mentioned the experience where you breathe and you see your breath and you make a tree grow. But then we hear feedback from one of the patients who's saying, I was in my garden, my back pain was flaring up, I was thinking about picking up the, the pill bottle. But then I started breathing and just imagining a tree grow from my garden. And it really is reconditioning the mind and the nervous system because a lot of learning, I'd say most learning happens at a non-conscious and emotional level. We learn best through experience. And experiential learning really is the most impactful way for you to learn skills of any type. Um, But it's hard to get that real-world experience, to speak on stage. How many times do you have to face that fear and get on stage? And how many speaking engagements uh, can you book to get enough consistent practice? As opposed to VR, you're right. It's not real, but it's real enough to trick the brain. And start overriding some of those existing scripts that are running to retrain yourself. So next time, you'll have to a little less and you'll each time get a little more conditioned to be able to do that with, with more confidence and with the right skills that you're developing. I love it. I love it. Amazing conversation, Josh. And I'm really just, I'm proud as a YPO member that, that someone of your caliber has taken this challenge and, and taken it seriously enough because there's, there's, you know, you can go on to these, these things I keep picking this thing up and you can download a bunch of games that teach you breath works. You can do a bunch of things that teach you, you know, meditation and everything else, but, but the, the, the lift and I'm sure the pain of getting this federally, you know, regulated by, by the FDA and other, and, you know, other institutions is a huge, massive lift that most people wouldn't even think is worth the time. Um, but, but it's, it seems like the metrics that you guys have are, are paying dividends to a large number of people in, in a country right now that is overrun by an opioid epidemic anything, any alternative that we can provide to keep one more person off of, off of that reliance and off of, off of these pharmaceuticals to me is a massive, massive win. So I absolutely applaud you for, for there. Um, looking out over the next, you know, years, I mean, where this is going and, and without, you know, kind of divulging your, your roadmap, what's kind of the biggest pain points that you're going to see of bringing this to true scale um, that just don't exist yet today? Where we get the most excited is when we have to when we stop seeding the market with the hardware right now that's a necessary evil so people don't have vr headsets in the home um at large yet alone uh, elderly chronic pain sufferers and so right now we've taken in a model where we ship the device in the home it's all pre-configured it's ready to use out of the box they send it home um but that's a challenge as you think about what this looks like at scale because that's just our application. And in a world where we see a lot of applications of VR, it wouldn't make sense to have a headset for chronic pain and a headset for depression. Everything needs to fit into the same ecosystem. And our vision of the future is that there's a virtual pharmacy in every home. Mm. A device sits in every home. And at the time, it was just getting a TV in the home that unlocked all these new um business models and media applications. And we see VR happening the same way. Over time, there'll be a VR headset in every home. Ideally, the headset is set up uh, for compliant medical use. And depending on who you are and what you need and what's going on with you and your family, 
there's different applications that could be prescribed and readily accessed through that headset. And so you wouldn't have to receive a device and send it home. Everything's contained there. And I think that's really where this becomes really powerful is when the hardware is at a place where the cost, the form factor, the comfort, and the performance allows us to be able to cement one of these and unleash this unlimited potential of all these different applications, not just for therapeutic purposes, for social connection. We've actually, over COVID, done some social support groups where people put on a headset and they're connected with other people in different cities across their state. And they can talk about that shared experience of what isolation looks like and what it's like dealing with a chronic illness at that time. And so therapeutic applications, social connection, and where I think the most exciting piece comes from is personalized medicine. We have so much data already coming on my, my ring and my watch and the devices I carry. And all that can be piped in and used in real time as we have big enough data sets and as there are hooks to be able to use that in more real-time basis then all of a sudden those same interactive experiences could be personalized to you. So you get what you need at that point in time. And you could see how engaged are you, how effective is this, and to be able to actually change the experience on the spot. And so all those things aren't going to come overnight. It's going to take 5, 10, 15 years. Um, but we're tracking towards that. And ultimately what this is about is changing behavior in a positive way. Behavior change is really hard. And anything we could do, any tools, any motivation, um, and any other thing that can help us adhere to all the little habits and steps we need to take to change our behavior is a really good thing. And I hope the insurance companies, I hope the different government institutions, I hope the medical uh, and, and education, other industries at large, start embracing this. We have a technology that offers very little risk and a lot of promise of how we can actually create more meaningful connections and catalyze behavior change in a really effective, engaging, and emotionally authentic way for people. Because we're able to create experiences. And while they're virtual experiences, they feel very real at that time. And through that experiential learning, there's so much that we could do uh, to be the best version of ourselves and improve our health and improve our performance and improve our relationships with others. And so it'll take time. We'll have to overcome a lot of skepticism and challenges and um, noise in the market. Um, but I'm really confident that this is a positive thing for society and um, we're on our path to get there. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Josh, for this. Um, if anyone wants to learn more or they just go, oh my gosh, I need this, where, where's the best place to find you guys? Our website's appliedvr.io. I'm available on Twitter, LinkedIn, and any other social network at Josh Sackman and look forward to continuing the conversation. Feel free to reach out. Love it. Love it. Why whales? This is Josh with uh, Applied VR. And, um, you know, one, maybe one of these days it'll be Applied AR as well. Get on a little augmented yeah. reality. And I'm sure yeah. you guys have played with the technology, but couldn't be more excited for what you guys are doing. Very thankful um, to, to see entrepreneurs of your caliber really focusing on on some of these problems. It's just too easy right now for the pharmace- pharmaceutical companies just to continue to pumping pills into everyone. And so anything that, that helps evolve mental health, anything that evolves physical health that does not require... Um, um, you know, pills or, or drugs, I, I absolutely stand behind and, and you guys will have Y Whales full support. So thank you so much for what you guys are doing. Thanks, Jay. Really appreciate it. All right, Y Whales, we'll catch you next time. Y Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck 
passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.